Thank you, Henry. Uh, be really, really helpful uh, if you could open up Habakkuk chapter 3 uh, with me. We'll read through that together in just a moment. Uh, as you'll know, it's just after Nahum in the Old Testament. No good? Okay, right. Page 786, if you've got a church Bible. Just kidding. Picture with me the scene. It's a busy Middle Eastern marketplace. People going about their weekend business, women carrying bundles of cloth, bulging packages under their arms, children's running and shrieking, uh, happy to be out of school. Traders chatting with one another. Old men sat at tables drinking sweet tea. Bright colours everywhere. Strong flavours of herbs and spices and exotic fruits fill the air, along with the dust thrown up by horses and mules. And then your gaze falls on the young man standing at the drinking, drinking fountain in the middle of the square. He's familiar to you as he is to everyone. Of course he is. He's been there every day for months. Until now, he's cut a wretched figure, a face full of despair to the point of tears, grabbing at passers-by, urging them to change their ways, to not invoke the wrath of Yahweh. They would shrug him off. At first, he amused them, but now he's just an irritation. More recently, this would be alternated with cries towards the heavens, arms aloft, begging the Lord to show himself, to act justly, to act swiftly. Until now, not today. Today, there is something different about him. Because today, he is singing. This is Habakkuk, and this is his song. Chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? 
Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble, to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Well, over the last few years, you can't have failed to notice that we live in a messed up world. I'm not sure I have any words to add to the column inches written about the events in recent weeks in the Middle East. Have no images to conjure up to match those already shown on our TV screens. No anecdotes to share to describe the pain of those who've lost loved ones, all of which has been truly terrible. Or maybe just Consider our current situation in the UK. Collapsed economy. A shrinking jobs market, even more so in the face of AI technology. Housing, food and fuel prices spiralling. Gang violence on the streets, social injustice, the disintegration of community, a widening gap between us and the elite. Manipulation by mainstream media. And above all, a wholesale disregard for God's law. Tonight, I want us to consider what true faith really looks like when the world that surrounds us seems so broken and godless. But clearly, Habakkuk is not an easy read. It doesn't offer us easy answers even as Christians, we might read it and wince at its directness. If you're not yet a believer here tonight, 
then you might be feeling, that, you know, this just confirms your worst impression of an angry, violent God. A God who rules by fear and oppression. If that's you, hopefully you'll change your mind this evening. Because it's even more surprising to realize that this chapter that celebrates God's judgment is a song of rejoicing, albeit through the tears of current distress. In fact, uh, you'll see at the top, the editor describes this section as a prayer according to Shigianoth. Now, we're not told who or what Shigianoth is, but it seems as though it could be a type of lament, and that seems to fit, doesn't it? A lament, a song of hope sung through tears of pain. A lament that is crying out to God with a hurting heart, while at the same time trusting in his good promises. It's rooted in what we believe. It's the cry of a believer who knows that the world is broken, but also a believer who knows that the God is powerful and that he will be faithful to his promises. And it comes at the end of a spiritual journey for Habakkuk. And as such, it offers the believer some real cause for hope because it sets a pattern for us to follow and presents us with four challenges as we help uh, to help us grow in our faith. And the first of those is that in testing times, faith responds in prayer. For a bit more context on what's been going on, uh, look back uh, with me, if you will, to chapter 1. We'll see that Habakkuk is wrestling with the apparent inactivity of God in the face of wrongdoing amongst God's people. His questions to God are straightforward. He's been waiting, but he's growing weary. So in verse 2, he asks, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? I expect Deuteronomy 28 would have been written large and loud on the hearts of those faithful to God, living in Judah at this time. God had promised that blessings would come as a result of their obedience, but he also promised that disobedience would be met with a time of judgment. Now, we might be forgiven for thinking that Habakkuk has crossed a line. I mean, who is he to question God? But I think it's something that we've all done, isn't it? How long, O oh Lord? We cry out, don't we, when loved ones are sick or worse still taken from us. When financial worries overwhelm us, when work just dominates every moment of our lives. Or we feel burdened by life itself. And no one, not least of all God, seems to notice or to care. And to make it worse, there is seemingly no hope of any respite. How long? O Lord, we cry. But indeed, Habakkuk doesn't just sit on his problems and hope they go away by themselves. No, he gets on his knees and he prays. So surely, instead of any wrongdoing here, he's taking his complaint to the only place he ought to take it. And as if to justify this, chapter 1, verse 5 to 11, 
God isn't silent. He gives him an answer. Read with me. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is God speaking. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They come, all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God has heard Habakkuk's prayers, and he is answering them in no uncertain terms. God is going to punish his people. He's going to use the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, to do it. It's probably not the answer that Habakkuk was hoping for. I guess perhaps some sort of discriminating plague that picked out the bad guys would have been preferable, and it's been done before. In fact, anything but this. The Babylonians were surely more wicked than the people of Judah, though. Would God not judge them too? asks Habakkuk. He thought God was blind to the goings-on, thought maybe God was letting things slide. But the truth is, nothing gets past God, and God is always at work. Unseen to Habakkuk, events were unfolding as a result of God's sovereign design. A terrible judgment would fall on Judah, and then ultimately on the Babylonians too. Habakkuk prayed, and God answered him. And so by the time we get into chapter 3, there's a distinct change in the attitude of Habakkuk as we see his understanding develop. His tone has changed from frustration to a fearful respect. But still he prays, verse 2, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's crying out again. I know the stories from years gone by of all the things that you've done. But what you're telling me now, well, that's truly scary. But I accept the time has come for you to act again. In the midst of the years, revive it, he says. But Lord, in your anger, don't be indiscriminate in your actions. Rather, remember to be merciful to those who deserve mercy. Show everyone your goodness and loving kindness. It's also worth noting, isn't it, that a right fear of God, something so many of us have lost. It's not a bad thing, especially when it pushes us to our knees in prayer. 
Habakkuk displays this respect to God's power. It's not a plea to God to change his mind, to not bring judgment. It's not a request to God to break his promises. In fact, the opposite. He wants God to act. He wants God to reveal himself through his glorious, renowned power. He knows the might of God's arm, and that leaves him rightly nervous. It takes faith to pray when you're in pain. So often, our anger leads us to take situations into our own hands. The problem's so big that, that prayer doesn't seem enough. In fact, it can seem like we're doing nothing at all. But silence is not the answer. Jonah in the belly of the whale. Job amidst all his struggles. Christ in the garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup away from me. But at the same time, being ready to accept God's response, however tough it may be, is a sign of spiritual maturity. Contrast the example of Peter after his arrest as he denies Christ to avoid punishment, with that of Christ himself, who remains silent before his accusers, ready to receive whatever is given him. Praying for God to act is a good thing. Being prepared to accept his actions in whatever form they take is a hard thing, and it requires a mature faith I guess instinctively we're probably closer to Peter than we are to Christ. Secondly, uh, in testing times, faith remembers God's redemptive acts. Now, I'm not a massive fan of Marvel movies, but from what I've seen of them and the other battle scenes from epic movies as Lord of the Rings, etc., they hardly touch the surface of the scenes of violence we read in chapter 3, as Habakkuk envisions the destruction that God is going to bring to the lands. Verse 4, rays flash from his hands. Verse 5, before him went pestilence, plague follows at his heels. Verse 6, he looked and shook the nations, then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. Verse 9, you split the earth with rivers. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and writhed. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still. And then God's enemies are destroyed in verses 12 to 15. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations. Verse 13, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. the shops might already be selling us mince pies and a winterval without God. But as we read this, you might be asking, where's the baby Jesus from the manger? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Where's fairy tale Jesus? Where's the tinsel and the turkey? Not here in Habakkuk. Instead, we see that God's power to bring justice is overwhelming and unstoppable. For anyone to doubt that he is able to deal with the troubles of this world would be foolishness. 
mountains writhe on seeing him. Consider that. His strength to crush his enemies is undeniable and without equal. God provides strong justice. There is no room for the velvet glove of liberal politics here. No room for shorter sentences, asbos, and more home comforts for the guilty. But rather than feeling outrage at this, we should instead be encouraged by the Creator's presence and power. Through these quite literally earth-moving actions, we see time and again that the Creator God, who made the land and made the sea, has physically rescued his people by the very same means. But even more so, we're reminded of the spiritual redemption gained through them. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of the anointed. Anything was possible from their God for their good. The purpose of his violent interventions was always, in the end, to redeem his people. And it is, of course, eternal rescue, not mere physical death that ultimately concerns God. Nonetheless, his physical victories for Israel are a necessary background that help us understand the certainty of the final cosmic defeat of evil. Why did God become human? So that the greatest single act of violence could be carried out by evil men against him. It was God who entered this dark world in the person of Jesus Christ. It was God who suffered and died, not only with us, but for us. Through his own suffering, he can offer us both redemption and relationship. His comfort, strength, and truth speak into our struggles and point us towards a hope-filled future beyond the reach of pain. His kingdom will be established, and believers will be raised with him in glory. Sin, death, and the devil will be defeated. In testing times, faith responds in prayer. Faith remembers God's redemptive acts. Thirdly, faith rests in God's sovereign timetable. Look at verse 16 and 17. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Increasingly, we live in a world that expects, no, demands instant results. But perspectives change, people change. In singing his song, we see Habakkuk's faith has found a renewed vigor. His concluding lines show us a person who has begun to live by faith. He's growing in the grace and the knowledge of God 
as well as growing in understanding of God's revelation, of his way of working in the world. Waiting is not something that comes naturally to us. In fact, if you're anything like me, you'll hate being left to wait because it feels like we're not doing anything. That's so often the point, isn't it, with God? You're not doing anything. You're not meant to be doing anything. Because nothing you can do even comes close to making a difference. You're not doing anything because God is. To wait upon the Lord means to place your hope in him. To trust that God is the one who can deliver. It's not just an intellectual belief. No, your entire confidence rests on him. We wait upon the Lord and trust in his sovereign timetable, as Habakkuk did, because he is God and we are not, even though waiting puts us in an uncomfortable place. Over time, we'll come to realize that many of God's lessons to our hearts come slowly. Often this only happens at the point when we're broken and ready for him to lead us. Waiting can be a painful time, but it's not a waste of time. Finally, in testing times, faith rejoices in God's saving power. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I'm sure you're familiar with the antics of the alpine ibex. It's an amazing goat-like creature. It seems to be able to climb sheer cliffs uh, without stumbling or any sense of danger despite their precarious situation. Worth a Google. Well, this is the image that Habakkuk wants to share with us as his oracle comes to a close. Just consider his journey of faith at the start weighed down by the burden of disillusionment, fear, helplessness, as he cries out to a God who who seems to have deserted him. And then an answer from God that promises justice, that leads to a realization that it's through these redemptive acts that we can be sure of who God is, be sure of his power to deliver his people. And then finally, we witness this confidence that Habakkuk has, that God will fulfill his promises in his own perfect time. A confidence that leaves him, you know, not just leaping like a mountain goat or a deer on a cliffside, but more importantly, leaves him rejoicing. Yes, hardship and suffering await him, as it does the believer. But he knows that God is good and deserving of praise, that God is the true source of hope and joy in this world, no matter how bad life seems. The enslaved Israelites were delivered through the Red Sea when God parted the waters for them to cross. Moses celebrated in song. 
The unmarried Virgin Mary was visited by the Lord and became pregnant. By faith, she trusted uh, that her child would be the Messiah. Mary, too, rejoiced in song. Habakkuk's joy as he stands in that imaginary marketplace singing is similar. He believes wholeheartedly that Judah will eventually be delivered from exile in Babylon. But first, they must patiently endure it. His faith that God's work will be done on earth causes him to rejoice in spite of testing circumstances. But it's not just the content of the message that Habakkuk receives, or even the promise of the Babylonian demise that brings him joy. It's not just his memory of past displays of power, though each of these is indeed necessary to his faith's foundation. Surely also it's in part because God is present to him. He speaks to him. He responds to him, addresses him, listens to his questions. Aren't those more reasons for him to sing? Jesus said this, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and eat. If you don't yet know this Jesus, there's an offer of relationship with him that is open to all. He understands your pain and your hurt, your disillusionment with the world. Through Christ, we can turn for help and comfort to a God who is not remote or distant, but one who is able to bear our sorrows and struggles with us. Then, my friends, there may not be fruit on the vines. There may be no food in the field, no herd in the stalls. But we can take great joy in his promise of salvation to the believer. He stands as the ultimate judge of all and has promised that after a time of merciful grace, he will bring perpetrators of violence, wrongdoing, and injustice to account. And in so doing, will remove all pain and fear and hurt. As Jesus was leaving the upper room with his disciples and heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane and so ultimately to his death, he made this final promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but one day your sorrow will turn into joy. And so I hope that you too will one day rejoice. Let me pray. Our sovereign Lord, we so often doubt you, put you to one side. I pray that by your words this evening, we will be encouraged not to lose heart, but to lean on your redemptive might and to wait on your goodness and mercy and thus to rejoice in your unwavering faithfulness. 
In Jesus' name we pray.